Two quick things to mention before we start the show today. First, we posted an audience survey on our website at bigbiology.org survey, and we want as many listeners as possible to fill it out. It should only take you a few minutes. The anonymous information we'll gather there will help us identify appropriate advertisers to keep the show financially stable and to help us tailor the show to what you want to hear. Remember, www.bigbiology.org survey. And second, we want to remind you about our Student Spotlight Project. Students, please send us a 30 to 60 second audio clip describing your research. We'll put them all on our social media feeds, and a lucky few will even make the podcast. This week, the spotlight is on Columbia University student Laura Plimpton, who studies the ecology of feral cats. My name is Laura Plimpton, and I am a second-year master's student at Columbia University, and I am interested in understanding how host composition impacts zoonotic disease dynamics and ultimately prevalence. And I'm specifically studying the role of feral cats in urban disease systems. I find cats interesting because they're an introduced species and they're highly abundant, and in urban systems as the main mammalian predator, their presence may have important implications for zoonotic disease dynamics through their interactions with other hosts. It's also been really interesting conducting this research within such a polarized system and navigating how to study a species that is both loved by some, but also considered problematic by others. I'm still gathering data and analyzing my results, but I can say with complete confidence that feral cat poop smells terrible. Thanks for sending that in, Laura. And if you're a student who would like your research featured on the show, send us an email with the audio file to info at bigbiology.org. Be sure to include your name, a recent photo, your institution, and any social media handles. Now, here's the show. The world can be a very noisy place. Think Times Square. Billboards flashing all around, cars honking, bikes whizzing by, and people everywhere. Some dressed up like superheroes or cowboys to get attention. All that activity can make it hard to communicate and concentrate. It's not much easier in much of the natural world. Waterfalls crash into rivers, courses of frogs, birds, and insects can sound like a rock concert, and brilliantly colored flowers and butterflies compete for attention using colors and smells. In recent times, the installation of drilling rigs and other man-made machines also adds to the din. Just like in Times Square, noise in natural environments can make it hard for animals to signal to a potential mate or even since a predator trying to eat them. Noise puts a lot of pressure on organisms to evolve signaling and sensory systems that are compatible with their environments. For example, there's a warbler in Asia that has evolved to sing really high-pitched songs as a way of standing out from the background noise of loud streams. And in Puerto Rico, anolis lizards have been found to develop dewlaps that stand out against the background color of their environment. The idea that signaling and sensory systems should evolve predictably to fit their environments is called sensory drive. The signals that organisms make usually aren't arbitrary accidents of history. They often complement the arenas of sound, sights, and smells in the habitats where they live. And that's what I find most satisfying. You can predict it on based on first principles alone, the okay. physics of an environment or the, the basic principles of signal uh, transduction and, and signal on transmission in a specific environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not random. And for, me, for most of us out here, we like to predict variation or mm -hmm. at least understand it. Right. So it's a very satisfying, it's not arbitrary. That's Molly Cummings, a researcher at the University of Texas at Austin who studies sensory drive in fish. Molly and others think that sensory drive can explain the vast diversity of signaling systems that we see in the natural world. We talked to Molly live in Austin, Texas in early January 2020, 
at the annual meeting for the Society of Integrative and Comparative Biology. There, we discussed how environmental conditions have affected the array of techniques that animals use to send and receive signals. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. So we're here today to talk about sensory drive, and something you've been working on for a long time. We want to get into the nuts and bolts. We want to talk about methods you've used. We want to talk about systems you've worked in. But I bet you, given the diversity of SICPI, we should start broad and just define it. Sure. What is sensory drive? Absolutely. It's a very intuitive process, but it, it describes an evolutionary pattern. And it's a pattern that allows us to predict the evolutionary direction of communication traits. So specifically, it looks at the environment and how communication traits are a product of those specific environment of each species. And when I talk about communication traits, I'm not just talking about the signals, but I'm talking about the sensory system as well. And in fact, sensory drive tends to start with the sensory system because it posits that animals need to first feed in order to grow to get big enough to have sex and pass on their genes. And so to find their food and to survive and avoid finding or being found by predators, they need to detect food and predators in their environment. Mm-hmm. And so selection pressures are high on the sensory system to be well-tuned to detect these necessary targets. So that produces sensory biases per an environment, per a species. Mm-hmm. And once those are on the scene, then sexual selection can take advantage of that. So you can imagine that any signal that might arise that becomes more detectable to its intended viewer mm-hmm. has a communication advantage. If it mm-hmm. t- exploits or takes advantages of the specific features that that viewer is more sensitive to. Right. Okay. And so how how old is this hypothesis? When was it first put forward? You know, it's interesting. Officially, the term sensory drive was put forward by John Endler in 1992, but the ideas are older than that. I mean, it's a very intuitive idea that all of us in this room, you know, makes sense to all of us. Mm -hmm. Some of the early um, acoustic or birding people actually put forth the idea, Morton, in in 1975, of the environmental selection hypothesis. And he was interested in whether or not you could predict the variation in birdsong based on the acoustic properties of the habitat, microhabitat that these birds were singing in. And we might get to this later on. It's just ironic that birdsong is not probably the best feature that can be <laughs> predicted by abiotic or physical features. Um, but okay. anyhow, John Endler kind of took this idea, and, and along with others in the sensor exploration world, Mike Ryan and others start really started to uh, find evidence for Would it. you consider it, it seems inherently an integrative sort of process. I mean, it's one of those examples before we really started using the word a lot. I mean, it's the genetics and neurobiology and sexual selection you invoke, so it's almost any scale of biological organization you'd want to think about. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so maybe let's put some meat on the bones of this idea of... Um, you know, signals matching their environment. So, so what, what would be an example of a signal not matching its environment and maybe an example of one then matching its environment? So this is a great question, and I'm so glad you used the word match and I said match, which is probably, a, can be a little and bit And we shouldn't misleading. use that word? Or well, what? no, no, no. Yeah. It's important to actually uh, contrast against your environment. Uh-huh. If you match too well, you become cryptic. I right? see. Yeah, because um, your, your signal just disappears into right, the, the exactly. environmental noise. And yeah. so you want to actually take advantage of the sensory properties that have evolved to detect things against that background. Uh-huh. 
And so good signals that contrast against the background. A great example that I love um, is with these, I think they're called concave-eared torrent frogs, and they live in China. And they live um, around these, these uh, waterfalls with really high frequency you know, noise in the background. Well, they've evolved ultrasonic hearing as well as ultrasonic calls to get away from that noisy bandwidth that is hanging out in their acoustic space. And so in that way, you don't match that, you don't want to match what the waterfall's doing, you want to be outside of that, so you contrast and have, uh, you're detectable against that background. Yeah, yeah. And then a related idea here is is this, this idea of private communication channels, right? So you want to signal and you want to distinguish yourself from the background, but you don't want to broadcast yourself to everyone out there, right? Because that's dangerous. Exactly. So yeah. I think private communication is the ultimate example of sensory drive because ideally the optimal signal is extremely conspicuous to the intended viewer while being min or minimizing detection to an unintended viewer such as a predator. Mm -hmm. And so private communication is a way to that takes into account not just the sensory system of the viewer of interest, but the sensory system that you're trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of different ways that animals have evolved a means to have a private communication channel. One of them is to extend the range of their typical sensory uh, sensitivity range into a range that goes beyond what their predator can detect. So ultraviolet light is proposed to be one of those regions of the spectrum that some small animals can take advantage of for communication, while larger animals usually, or many larger animals, block out UV at the level of their lens. Mm -hmm. And so it's this free playground to advertise. This is like uh, kids in classrooms using ultra-high frequency phone uh, <laughs> beeps, right, that their teachers can't hear. Their because teachers of the rock such concert. as us. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've deadened those neurons. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, what's it good for? I mean, if it's an integrative science, what are the sorts of things that it's really led to? Uh, one of the ones, I don't want to necessarily put words in your mouth, but one of the things that, in reading the papers that you've done that blows me away, and I know a lot of other people like to think about it, and evolution's not supposed to be super predictable, and Stevie Jay Gould's ideas about replaying the tape of life and we'll get the same thing twice. I think this gives us a different perspective on that, yeah? Absolutely, and that's what I find most satisfying. You can predict it on based on first principles alone, the mm -hmm. physics of an environment or the, the basic principles of signal uh, transduction and, and signal on transmission in a specific environment. Mm -hmm. And some of the systems I've worked on or worked within have been simple enough that the constraints are, are such that there are only one or two ways mm -hmm. to, to make it work, to optimize your conspicuousness. Um, or to minimize, you know, to become private. Um, and that makes it very clear. Um, and so, for instance, a surf perch. But there are lots of examples out there where people have been able to identify environmental gradients. Um, I'm thinking of the Lake Victoria cichlids as, a, as an excellent example. So you have an environmental gradient of, of optics where shallow species have broader spectrum, more blue light available to them, deeper species have um, less blue and more red in their environment. And you have repeated um, species pairs uh, that are in close proximity but have diverged in those microhabitat use. And the opsin sequences have changed such that the deeper species have uh, greater sensitivity to longer wavelengths mm -hmm. of light. Mm -hmm. 
And then female preferences have changed with that, and male nuptial coloration has changed in the same predictive way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's not random, and for, me, for most of us out here, we like to predict variation, or mm -hmm. at least understand it. Right. So it's a very satisfying, it's not arbitrary, the way some other models of sexual selection have, have been built upon. Yeah. And I think the other selling point I remember reading from your work and, and Endler's is that uh, it's, a, it's another way to understand the diversity, I mean, a diversity that exists out there. But I, I'm wondering what you think about Century Dive as a driver of diversity relative to the other things that generate it. How important, is it even possible to sort of say, it's 20% more important then? Um, oh, I've never thought of actually quantifying the effect of sensory drive we on species. We try to species. go for the hard questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ooh, I Can might, need, I might need another sip. <laughs> More gin. Um, that's a really interesting question, and I've never attempted to think about it in, in that light. But without a doubt, I would think that if you are a specialist in microhabitat, then you would tend to have specialization in communication traits. Mm -hmm. I do know, I think um, this is not my work, but there's a beautiful um, theory and review paper by uh, Streelman and, um, and uh, Danley. And they looked at um, steps of the evolutionary process, uh, speciation process, excuse me. And the first is habitat choice. So, you know, if you right. pick a different habitat, you know, allopatry is going to drive speciation. And the second is, I believe, and don't, you know, please forgive me if I'm wrong with the second one, but I think it's foraging, niche specialization and possibly foraging. And the third one is communication traits. And at each step of those, this three-step model, you get greater amounts of speciation events. And they looked at this in cichlids. They looked at this in parrotfish. They looked at this, I believe, in anolis lizards, and you, they kept seeing the same pattern. So communication traits definitely lead to explosive speciation, and in fact, the cichlids are a good example of that in, in some realms, because when uh, Oli Seehausen um, noticed uh, certain portions of, I believe it was Lake Victoria, one of the African cichlid uh, rift lakes, um, was becoming eutrophic, had a lot of um, turbid water conditions, what was used to be, you know, you could see the blue light and you used to be able to see the red light. Instead, the whole light spectrum was becoming green. Mm. And that led to hybridization of these two different, like, species flocks. And so instead of getting a diversity of fish, they were getting hybridization sort of and a yeah. fusion of, yeah. the, of the species flock. Wow. So in, in kind of almost hindsight, that's evidence that um, sensory drive can lead to a uh, diversity of species. Yeah, neat, neat. Another idea that plays it here is is coevolution, right? And I think I think you said this, but but effectively we've been talking mostly about signals and signal diversity. But the complement to that, obviously, is the receivers and all the receiver processing that goes along with that. And so, I mean, those those things must be having a very sort of tight coevolutionary relationship with one another. Yes, and I I hesitate a little bit just because in the sensory world as well as the signal world, um, the production of a sensory sensitivity doesn't have to be directly linked to genes, okay? There's a lot of plasticity and there are a lot of mechanisms to tune your sensory apparatus um, to specific environments. Mm -hmm. And so it is a coevolutionary process in the sense that the sensory system has to have built in its uh, genomic makeup, the ability to be plastic, but the sensory system can be, can, 
can, I, I know the vision world the best, but there are many ways that the visual system can tune without changing its DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and it can tune to a specific background. And we're now finding out, I saw this beautiful talk by Sebastian Alvarado yesterday, I believe, where Fish um, and also Chad Brock's done some work on this with sticklebacks, but cichlid and sticklebacks can change their color patterns over time to match the background um, as well. So there's, there's without a doubt, co-evolutionary processes between signal and sensory system, but now, more recently, we're realizing that co-evolution can have a plasticity component to it. Co-plasticity. Yeah, co-plasticity. Co yeah. And it's, it's pretty exciting. And yeah. uh, they're trying to, they're now starting to understand the mechanisms of the plasticity of the signal side, whereas the mechanisms on the sensory side are, 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 are better known. Yeah. Great. How about the processing side? I mean, do we know, can we even measure how much better one organism, individual or species is about processing the signals? Your sensors aren't great, but your capacity to get extract information from the noise oh, is wow. better. Yeah. I told you. I asked <laughs> oh. um, so that's going even deeper into the black box, right, of the brain. Mm -hmm. um, so to do that, um, you can... Um, record from cells up the processing chain to see who's faster. Mm -hmm. um, you can also ask the animal itself with really careful behavioral designs. Mm -hmm. uh, are you better at picking up this signal than others? And um, there are examples of that that are escaping me at the moment, but um, without a doubt, it can't just be the first stage of the processing okay. of, the, of the collection. But the detecting cell itself has to be the initial filter. Sure. If it doesn't make it into there, you doesn't can't process matter. it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's effectively invisible. Okay. So, so or unheard. if we circle back around to signals too, if you just had to say, you know, as, as signals are evolving or as individuals are tuning them plastically to their local environments, like what, what makes for a good signal and what makes for a bad one? Um, I think it, it truly goes back to maximizing conspicuousness in a custom customized fashion, right? Mm -hmm. So turning it on. So being um, smart about how you... Absolutely. It and in fact, if you can modulate your signal where you only use it when you need it, mm -hmm. um, that is the one of the best ways to, to communicate yeah. um, because yeah. it's usually expensive to signal mm -hmm. um, and sometimes these have physiological costs of production itself. Right. And so if you can optimize not only your energy balance but also the cost of being seen or heard or tasted or smelled by someone you don't want yeah, to do yeah. that. Okay. Let's dig in also to some of your older work um, uh, on surf perch. You mentioned surf perch a little while ago, but um, so you've studied five species of surf perch in kelp forests off the coast of California, and you did some some sort of really definitive work on visual systems in those fish. So maybe just tell us about what what's the diversity of visual systems among those fish, and and how is it related to the habitats they they occupy, and and what's the you know what's the issue? Okay, so. Um, Rope me in if I get a little bit too down the rabbit hole of surf perch, but I love these cold-blooded creatures. They're really lovely. Um, so surf perch, I picked them originally uh, to test John Endler's ideas because I thought they had an amazingly variable 
and constrained optical environment, one of the most optically variable environments in the world. And I thought, okay, if sensory drive's happening, I can probably find it with them. Then I got extremely lucky when I went in to start measuring their sensory, their visual, the absorption spectra of their photoreceptor to find that they only had two classes of cone photoreceptors. This made my job as a visual modeler so much easier. Nice. And Is that unlike most fish? I mean, most, most fish well, have more? Or, uh, fish, I'm a fish head people. I'm, uh, you know, unabashed about it. Uh, fish are amazing. You have, you have single phone, a single photoreceptor fish. You've got fish with five photoreceptors. You've got a great deal of diversity. Um, but a lot of the tropical fish would have three or four cone classes. Mm-hmm. So the two cone classes made it really easy to model whether or not they were doing a good job with brightness detection or color detection. And in addition to that wonderful feature, I also knew, thanks to some fish ecology work on the surf perch, exactly what they needed to find to eat. And they all searched for the same visual target, this red Mm. algae. So I was able to um, get an underwater spectrophotometer working, spectroradiometer, measure light in all their microhabitats, which was a great PhD. I had (laughs) hundreds and hundreds of scuba dives uh, right next door to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Man, my life was awful back then. And have to suffer. Yeah, exactly. And so then I was able to measure their um, visual pigment sensitivities and knew exactly what they were trying to find. Uh So I could use visual modeling techniques to see um, literally what would be the best pigments to detect that target in their specialized habitat. And then in addition to that, I had even an an additional wonderful feature, again, not due to me, but just due to great luck, that someone had conducted, Giacomo Bernardi, had done a molecular phylogeny on this group. So I could actually estimate the ancestral visual pigments of this group, and then I could evaluate, are these fish um, evolving in a direction towards brightness contrast or towards color contrast relative to the ancestor? Hmm. So it's a really powerful system. And because of that dichromatic state, there's really, if if you have cone photoreceptors, which are responsible for helping you collect light and uh, characterize light in terms of its color and its intensity. If you only have two of them, if you, there's, um, and you want to kind of do both of those jobs of processing light, if you want to maximize brightness detection, you want to bring your cones and have maximal overlap so that you can really have a Overlap on their sensitivity. Yes, thank you. Overlap on on the sensitivity of the two different cone classes. If you want to pick up um, much better resolution on spectral information, the color of a target, you want to minimize overlap. You still want them overlapping, but not too much, because that gives you much more information Mm -hmm. about um, color features. Mm -hmm. And so I could absolutely ask which direction they went in this specific trade-off, and it was incredibly satisfying. Mm -hmm. So once I had their sensory biases identified in that way, I then could look at their color patterns and ask the same question. Have you diverged um, in a direction that improved color detection or brightness detection? Mm. And what was particularly powerful is that a lot of these species pairs that had diverged in terms of their sensory bias were still using the same basic color class. So they were still using blue or they were still using or they both were using orange to, to court females. But when you look at the reflectance properties of these blues and their oranges, they had diverged in their reflectance 
in a way that matched each of their specific sensory bias. Mm, awesome. So it was <clears throat> ultimately tied up with a nice bow. <laughs> Yo, yeah, seven years and tied up nicely. <laughs> seven, a very slow seven right? soggy years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then how how are those five species arrayed in the environment? And like, how different are the light environments from from one species to the next? Yeah, so. Um, they are all within about 45 meters, uh, or uh, fit, mm, 20 meters depths, mm -hmm. depth. So a couple of them were in the shallows, mm -hmm. uh, you know, didn't venture past one meter depth. Others were largely in the kelp forest with lots of canopy. And then um, one was like all over the place. And mm -hmm. it was really, so there were two species. I told you I would take you down this kelp forest rabbit hole, mm -hmm. but there were two species who diverged from the ancestral state for better color detection capability. And one of them was in the shallow, which in some ways you would expect that because you have access to a broader spectrum of light because the water itself doesn't um, selectively uh, take out too many of the wavelengths. The other one had the greatest, diver it was actually average depth was, was, the, uh, was the deepest, but it had such a diverse habitat range. It was off in the sand, it was under the kelp forest, it was in the shallows, it was in these kind of gaps in the kelp forest, that it had the, experienced the greatest diversity uh, or variation in intensity of its environment. And I don't know how many of you ever pay attention to the color vision hypotheses about why our ancestors developed trichromatic vision. But one of the competing hypotheses is that if you're gonna try to find food in a forest, like a terrestrial forest, the luminance or brightness channel is too variable with all that dappling of the light coming in and you know, like going to shadows and dark, that you should really be better to have a color channel because the targets would be more consistent. Yeah. And so that made me smile to think that my little surf perch, my mighty little surf perch, were actually potentially paralleling our, our ancestors in that, you know, moving towards color vision if their environment is too variable in the intensity channel. Mm -hmm. Got it. Is there any explanation? So if some fish have five, why do all of these have two? I mean, this trade-off is just so phylogenetically old that not really possible to have a third? No, I actually think the, the surf perch having two makes sense given their environment because they have so many. The, um, the California kelp forest is the most uh, nutrient-rich um, uh, ocean in the world. And so you have a lot of phytoplankton coming in, phytoplankton and zooplankton, and they're going to differentially absorb certain wavelengths of light. So the spectrum available to surf perch is truncated. Um, in fact, I remember, <clears throat> hope John doesn't listen to this, but I remember showing John Endler some of my very first spectra. He's like, is there something wrong with your spectrometer? There's no red. <laughs> John doesn't like to get in the water. So I'm like, no, John, this was taken at 30 feet below, and there's a lot of junk above it. So no, there was no red because there was stuff in the water that was absorbing red. So my, my little surf perches don't need. Their two cone classes pretty much cover the entire bandwidth of light that's generally available to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
So, so what, what's happened in the surf birch world since then? Have you still worked on them? <laughs> is, is somebody carrying the torch? Um, no one's crazy enough to carry that torch anymore. Nobody wants to get uh, that soggy, huh? I think no, exactly. Um, I think there's some wonderful surf perch questions, but having moved to Austin, mm-hmm. it's kind of difficult to get back out to California. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think there's wonderful surf perch stories. Aren't to there be. species in Lake Travis you could work on? Yeah. <laughs> I think Lake Travis is is more dangerous in terms of chemical exposure yeah, than yeah, than right. the Great Whites of uh, of Monterey Bay. Yeah, probably. <laughs> So you uh, had a paper not too long ago in Current, Zio- uh, Current Zoology about the sort of how common this phenomenon is. So it's pretty common. We know we seem to know mostly about visual systems, though. Correct. Um, well, we found the most support in visual systems when we looked at the sensory component. Um, and I think that goes back to, if you just compare vision to auditory, this idea that, um, um, well, I think one of the big drivers between it is that a visual signal is somewhat localized, um, whereas an auditory signal can be broadcast in an omnidirectional um, situation. So for instance, we'll take this room, for example. If someone's going to enter the room and is trying to find me, and they enter in that door over there. They have to come in, they have to turn, they have to look in my direction, and they have to have the photoreceptors to detect this colored shirt against that background. If, however, they enter the room and they're trying to find me from using auditory cues, right away they know I'm here. And in fact, my thanks to this microphone, my auditory signaling is essentially taking up all this acoustic space and I become the acoustic background. So if you want to develop or evolve a signal that is going to compete or stand out against Molly's voice, you have to um, work your signal in a different bandwidth, let's say, an auditory acoustic bandwidth. Um, And I think that's the situation. So the biotic factors of auditory signalers suddenly become the sensory background that other signalers need to diverge from. Hmm. And a number of people have documented this really well, um, finding that it's the signaling community of either birds in the forest or a chorus of frogs or crickets and that sort of thing, that that's what signal diverse, that drives signal diversity. So you have to worry about other your biotic sig- components rather yes, than sort it's of the abiotic parts Exactly. Of the, the, it's the biotic yeah, components yeah, given the auditory world, um, whereas in the visual realm, it tends to be more the the abiotic. Yeah. So, so what about other signaling modalities? Like, what, what are the ones we know the least about oh and uh, that are the most mysterious? Well, certainly um, olfaction, chemical processing yeah, I is, you might say that. Yeah, is yeah. tricky. Um, it's really exciting. You know, it's a good time. We finally have some amazing technology to identify olfactory receptors. Um, but you still need specialized techniques to to figure out the compounds, as well as then figure out, you know, which OR is binding to them and then how it's being processed. Um, And and we're still finding out whether or not pseudogenes are playing a role in in terms of uh, olfactory receptor genes, um, or are they truly just, you know, pseudo. Um, And then magnetic reception is also something that we, it's still a mystery. In terms of of the detector, it's, it's, you know, it's a, a long way coming, I think, until we really understand that well. Mm-hmm. Are, are there organisms that put out magnetic signals? 
Or are you talking about oh, organisms no, sensing the Earth's magnetic yeah, field? Yeah, that's a very good point. I was thinking more about sensory, but yeah, I yeah. don't know, and maybe someone in the audience I mean, knows whether or not a exist, magnetic right? signal is right. out there. That would be wild. That would be Magneto wild. Magneto man. <laughs> <laughs> right. if, if you know the answer during the Q&A, you have to say it, okay? okay. No. Yeah. So, so what other kinds of um, you know, sensory examples can you think of that are, that are unusual, like electrical signaling and eels, yeah, that kind of thing? Eels and uh, electric fish, they definitely uh -huh. signal and they jam each other. So they will match to, and then they'll have to go high or they'll go low to kind of get away from, again, the, the biotic signaling environment becomes the background that they have to uh, be contrasting against. Mm. Um, so definitely an electric, electric world for sure. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of in the in the olfactory world. It really it's it's still so um, nascent in, in terms of sensory drive with olfaction. Um, but I, I will point out that this idea of sensory drive goes beyond just the animals per se. If you think of pollination systems, plants have, have certainly exploited um, the sensory bias of pollinators by developing UV guidelines to their pollens and, and whatnot. So its sensory drive can um, help to explain and predict patterns well beyond you know, just an animal-to-animal system. Yeah. Yep. So, so if I had to paraphrase now what, what I hear sensory drive being, it's that, that the signals and the receivers evolve to match one another and also to you know, respond to their environments in ways that make them conspicuous to each other and not conspicuous to other consumers of those, of those signals. And, and that would be the sensory drive, drive theory. So, so are there major alternative hypotheses you know, that that try to explain the diversity of signaling? And, and if so, what, what are they? Well, certainly it's just um, random or arbitrary, arbitrary runaway, uh, a Fisher's process. So kind process. of like a Brownian motion sort of yes, uh, exactly. things yeah. evolve away from each other over time. Yeah. Huh. Um, when we think about sexual selection models, um, some of them think about the signal or itself, such as Fisher's runaway, and, and usually the starting part, point is arbitrary, and you've got co-evolution of preference and trait genes. But things like uh, direct benefit, you know, um, and indirect benefit, good genes hypotheses don't really actually make predictions about the type of signal, the features of the signal itself. So, in terms of alternatives to uh, explaining variation in sensory systems or features of signals, the only other one that I'm aware of is um, randomness and Brownian motion. <clears throat> oh, well, and then there's aesthetic sense as well. Uh, uh, and when you say the good genes hypothesis, like, like what, what do you mean by that? That females, for example, are listening to signals and trying to use the quality of the signal to assess the quality of the male whose genes they may or may not get? Right, that... so the signal somehow conveys information about the quality of the genes that would then in, uh, lead to an increased fitness or survivorship of, of their offspring. I see. I see. And so, and so what's missing from that idea, in a sense, is like the environmental context in which all of this signaling and receiving is happening. Correct, yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Good. Uh, one of the things that struck me in reading the papers is that, you know, I think it's probably obvious you can hear the radio when it's quiet versus trying to do it outside. Um, are there places in the world where it's practically impossible? Like sensory drive is not even anything we can talk about because the environment is just too difficult to signal in. 
And what and what does communication look like for animals in such places if they're common? Okay, um, I think where, where I'm going to take your question is um, <laughs> there are certainly super noisy environments if that where it's so chaotic. Mm -hmm. um, and let's just start with urban versus non-urban areas. Animals have responded to the noise that, you know, anthropogenic noise, <clears throat> birds and other acoustic signalers have shifted their, their song and their rates, their uh, frequencies um, of their acoustic um, signaling properties in a way that differs from their country brethren. Um, to actually avoid the, the biggest noise channel. So that's been very well documented. Um, other places in the world that I think maybe would fall under that category are extremely uh, um, variable environments, right? Where you have a hard time predicting what the background's gonna be. Um, <clears throat> and I think animals have, um, those environments exist. You know, one, from, from my personal experience that comes to mind, um, I tend to think about the polarized light field out in the ocean as being a highly dynamic, okay. um, extremely variable uh, light field, a component of the light field. Right. And animals are up against a, a, hard, a hard current to try to swim against this and try to either match it or figure out how to contrast against it. And when I think about polarized light, I think that yes, it's super variable. But if you just want to communicate at one point in time, maybe you can find that one window of opportunity where there is a small bit of predictability. And okay. so um, if I think about polarized light, it's, it's changing the main plane of the polar polarization underwater, changes with the axis of the sun. So as the sun transits across the sky, the polarized background is changing with it. So animals could potentially find one point in time a day where they have a predictable um, polarized light field that they can exploit that space, exploit yeah. that space, yeah. or they can exploit body position. So something like polarization is very angular dependent, and if an animal was paying attention to the where the rays of the sun were, he or she could orient its body in a way that would maximize transmission of a polarized signal directly to the viewer of interest. Has there ever been an attempt to to ask whether? the sort of more behavioral adjustments to the use of signals in places that are this way, that the individuals like compensate for the dynamism in the environment and the sort of lack of meaningfulness of an average. That is a great question. And there you I'm, go, we'll write an NSF proposal. Yeah, like I was this. gonna say, I'm unaware of anyone who has quantified that, but that's a wonderful okay. idea, hmm. yeah. I had a, a tangential question about climate change and small ectotherms, and, and particularly about climate warming. So are changes in temperature gonna change the way that ectotherms signal to one another? And is that driving the evolution of, of signaling and receiving? That is such a good question. I, yeah. um, I don't think about that one very often, but I'll, I'll give it a whirl. So if I think about ectotherms, small little ectotherms, I think Probably a lot of them use vibration, mm -hmm. possibly mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. a you know substrate vibration as a communicating signal, and a lot of sensory detectors are temperature dependent. So um, it's quite you know one predictive sensory drive would suggest that uh, vibration ectotherms who use vibrational cues we should see a rise in their detection window sensitivity. 
um, if it's if temperature leads to higher levels of um, detection in a certain vibrational panel. You, you mean they'll be better at detecting signals, or in they'll a be certain detecting range, higher frequencies? Potentially yeah. higher frequencies uh -huh. if temperature drives uh, vibrational detectors to be more sensitive at at higher frequencies. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But in terms of climate change, I think of, of climate change influencing sensory systems in a lot of different ways. So um, climate change, I also think of anthropogenic um, pollution. And certainly there's noise pollution, as we kind of just talked about. Um, but there's chemical pollution. And chemical pollution would obviously most likely affect any kind of olfactory sensing animal. But it's also going to affect... Um, visual uh, detecting animals. So uh, some beautiful work by Caitlin Friesen has looked at how small freshwater fish, if you give them um, exogenous uh, estrogen, which is what a lot of plastic in our fresh waters acts like, it acts like pseudoestrogen. Uh, when she exposed these fish to uh, exogenous estrogen, they changed their opsins, differential expression of different visual pigments in their eyes. And it wasn't the same across all the visual pigments. These species tended to have four different opsins. It varied, and, and it differed by species. So if you're expecting your receiver to be able to perceive a specific color, if you're a signaler, and suddenly those colors are being perceived differently because your female's on really high estrogen loads that aren't natural, um, this could absolutely alter communication dynamics. No, that's fascinating. Wow. How about light pollution? I mean, it seems like a fairly straightforward thing. I'm biased. My lab works on this. But is, the, is there research now on light pollution in sensory drive? Um, terrestrially, uh, light pollution, I'm unaware of uh, how that has influenced any kind of communication dynamics. But certainly in the case of the, the cichlids in uh, Lake Victoria, Light pollution underwater due to land runoff and eutrophication and having the water be too tur turbid. Perfect example. It's led to species collapse due to hybridization. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would say let's maybe start wrapping it up. And yeah, I have one more question. I have, well, I do two. One more, one more. Okay, okay yeah. You go you, one, I'll go one. And then you guys think about the questions you'd like to ask. No, you go first because I'm going to ask our, our big kind of forward-looking question. Okay. So. Is, there, is there an example that you, John Endler, anybody working in this area has just been puzzled by where this damn thing is that color and it really shouldn't be, and is there anyone that you can come up with? Oh, um, that one, nothing comes to mind, but I will say we're still puzzled by how vertebrates can see polarized light, and that's a burning question for a lot of visual ecologists at the moment. It's okay. still a giant puzzle, okay. but we know behaviorally that lots of different animals can, can see right. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you sort of just answered my question, but, <laughs> but but you know, if you were to think forward five years or ten years, like what 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 do you want to do to get at this, and and what what's the field going to do to get at this stuff? Mm -hmm. Well, there's some wonderful um, scientists that are working on the polarization mechanisms of detection uh, in in Britain. There's they're making some breakthroughs on trying to understand how that's happening. I'm personally interested in the private communication angle and whether or not animals are taking advantage of iridescence or polarized signals in a really customized way, turning it on or turning it off and in specific angles and using specific angles of polarized light to customize their delivery. And so you're imagining light reflecting off of fish scales, that kind of thing? Yeah, or, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And we know from our work with sore tails 
that males can modulate their polarized signals. In the presence of conspecifics, they turn on their polarized reflectance and they're showing high contrast. When they're by themselves, they turn it off. So that was under the most conserved um, situation where we didn't let them really move around too much and we had one unified, uniform polarized light field. I would love to mimic the daylight transition and see if they change not only their position when courting a female, but also the angle of polarized light that would maximize the contrast with the specific background. That's what I'd love to that's do. That's pretty neat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great. great. This is Big Bio producer Matt Blois. After finishing our interview with Molly, we open up the floor to questions from the audience. Yeah, hi, my name is Sebastian. I just wanted to share an example since you mentioned it about light pollution and how that affects sensory drive. There was one study looking at firefly beetles. Um, so they have evolved to use a light signal at night when there is that is visible. Uh, but now because of increased light in urban areas, that light signal, which used to be really noticeable, is completely drowned out by the bright light from our lights. And so that system has basically collapsed. The signal can no longer reach the receiver. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. That is a great one. Thanks. I mean, not a great one. <laughs> <laughs> We're very a sorry that happened. A significant and a good example, a terrible, yeah. terrible one. <laughs> Hi, Molly. My name is Alicia. Hi. Um, when you have private communication between two organisms, how often do you find the evolution of eavesdropping um, species? That is a great, great question. Um, so I love the, the UV example with small little fish because predators actually have a constraint to not go into the UV. And that's because in aquatic environments, UV scatters the most. It's a small, it's a short, short wavelength. And so it interacts with small particles in the water and effectively makes a fog underwater. And so if you're a predator, let's say I want to eat you. And yeah, I'm a predator and I'm going to look for you underwater. And if I could see UV in a typical water environment, you're going to look a little hazy because between you and me, there's a lot of little water particles that are uh, scattering UV light. And if I can see it, that's just getting in the way of seeing you. Now, if I have a lot of predators have yellow lenses or UV absorbing corneas and lenses, when that happens, then my photoreceptors are not bothered by this extra little noise. And I can see you clearly and I'm coming to get you. Um, and people then ask, well, then wouldn't this be a problem for little prey fish? If you think about um, little sore tails, they're eating things at really close distances. They're eating, you know, they're picking off surfaces or they're eating things out of the water column. And so that short distance is bothered less by that extra additional UV, quote unquote, fog. So there are places like when that situation comes into play where the cost of extending the predator's range into that sensory modality or that sensory range is too high that it's not worth it for them. And those are the situations where I think we're, we'll see private communication channels stay stable over time. Hi, Molly. Uh, Craig Franklin. I'm really interested when senses or the, a sense habituates and a kind of classic example that I had was working on an island with a thousand New Zealand fur seals. You arrived on the island and it smelled like a thousand hairy armpits, <laughs> the worst body odour ever. But within an hour, you lost that, that sense of, of body odour. 
are there examples you can provide from the, the natural world where, where that type of thing happens, that kind of habituation? Oh, ha habituation is universal. I mean, it's the universal system of our, of our sensory systems. And that might be why courtship vigor and all, you know, courtship crazy, courtship dances um, are, are part of the, we see them also being universal. So that a feature, so the female eye does not get habituated to just a static um, um, stimulus all the time. If we think about uh, various acoustic signals, they're often sometimes in repetitive, you know, there's breaks, there's intervals to, to, give, the, to give the neurons a break sometimes. Um, same thing with, you know, ultrasonics, you know, trying to find things. You're, if you're, uh, the sensory system doesn't want to waste its energy, always responding to too many repetitive things. Um, and I think your point might actually be part of the reason why we see such activity in some of the, the courtship displays that we do to make sure females are not habituating. Oh, just another gorgeous fella. <laughs> Can you do anything with those flashy feathers, please? <laughs> Any other questions? You're talking a lot about um, the, the color or the particular chemicals that a, a nose picks up and things like that as the target of sensory drive. But for a lot of our senses, we also have, uh, receivers are better at picking up signals from certain directions. Um, do you have you do you know of any examples or have you um, of cases where that that kind of directionality of how senses work has been something that selection has acted on? So, in terms of the communication realm, yeah. yes, um, there's this beautiful example of these butterflies, I believe, in Australia, um, or at least the researchers were Australian, and um, they looked at how the male was doing his courtship dance around the female. And he was timing and positioning his iridescent, um, his iridescent uh, wings, reflectance, to hit the female at just the right spot um, to, to really light up her world, so to speak. Um, so that's an example where direction matters. Um, there's also, I mean, on the sensory side, there's lots of, when, when you first talked about I was almost thinking you were talking about like phobias in our retina. Okay, so obviously we have a phobia where we have a higher density of um, photoreceptors in the center, but there's acoustic phobia as well where we pack in certain hair cells so certain bats that need to find specific prey items have really dense acoustic phobia so that they can pick these things up. But um, I will at least say one more thing and that is Usually, sensory drive, you focus on the sensory system first and then signals follow, right? There, and so, um, usually it's the males doing the signaling. But anyways, what I wanna point out is that there's a great example where sense, sexual selection has driven a sensory um, uh, unique adaptation in the males. And that is this beautiful, I think they're called blowflies. And Simon Laughlin and others have found that males flies, not females, have an additional photoreceptor type, and it helps them find females. And this makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because there's such great competition for males to find mates. Uh, females generally in that system don't need to quote unquote find a mate. 
um, but the males do. So that's one of the few examples where you've got sexually dimorphic sensory systems. And it's not necessarily sensory drive, but it's certainly sexual selection at play. It's really neat. Molly's research provides compelling evidence that the environment affects the evolution of sensory systems in predictable ways. In a sense, that's anathema to some thinking in biology, as the outcomes of evolution are not supposed to be as predictable as that. Too many one-time vagaries during the course of evolution should drive traits in unforeseen directions. Sensory drive, though, challenges that idea, showing that under certain conditions, the outcomes of evolution are predictable because some contexts greatly constrain the paths that lineages can take. Those insights could prove quite useful in a world where we humans are changing most everything. Earlier this season, we covered somewhat similar ground in our chat with UC Davis biologist Gail Patricelli. Gail told us about the impact of noise from oil and gas projects in the Great Basin on sage grouse and how research is helping land managers find ways to reduce the impacts of noise pollution and preserve the grouse. You can listen to that interview on our website. We know you love the show, so become a financial supporter on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio. Thanks to Matt Boyce for producing this episode. Mike Levine runs our social media channels and creates content for the Patreon page. Dana Baxter helps with background research. And as always, Steve Lane manages our website. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on this episode is from Pottington Bear. Before we wrap up, we wanted to play you one more student spotlight from Andrew Burchill at Arizona State. We also want to thank our producer, Mike Levine, for coming up with the idea for this project and producing these audio clips. My name is Andrew Burchill, and I'm a PhD student at Arizona State University, studying with Ted Pavlik and Stephen Pratt. Moving furniture sucks. I've ignored amazing apartments when I've been looking for a place to live. They were cheap spacious, great location, but they were on the sixth floor and the elevator was broken. I am not lugging my stuff up, you know? But I've seen teams of ants carry whole dead lizards, birds, going right across the ground and they hit a wall and go straight up the thing. They don't even break a sweat. Or, you know, do they? Is this kind of cooperative vertical transport thing even a challenge for ants? Until I started researching it, really no one had any idea. Still, probably we don't really have any idea, but I found some weird stuff happening with the ants up there. 